listening to the Simply 127 podcast, an entire podcast devoted to all things James 127. I'm your host, Sarah Beth Fintress, and I'm so excited that you've decided to join us today. This is Sarah Beth with the Simply 127 podcast. I'm very excited today to introduce you to my good friend, Peter. Um, how are you doing today, Peter? I am absolutely awesome today. <laughs> Good. Peter is one of our local leaders that we work with, with 127 Worldwide. He lives in Nairobi, Kenya. Can you tell us a little bit, Peter, just about um, your family that you grew up in? And we'll just jump right in and start asking you questions. Yeah, so I was privileged to be brought up in a Christian home. My, my dad was a pastor. My Mom was a homemaker. We were 11 children, if you understand soccer, that's a soccer team <laughs> without a reserve. Um, but tragedy hit our home when I was uh, 14 years old. Uh, I lost my mom in a car wreck. And uh, about uh, five years later, I lost my dad. And I struggled with reconcil- reconciling those um, attributes of God that uh, talks about him being our father, divine provider and protector mm-hmm. and how um, that did not translate in my uh, reality and uh, the devil really tried to use that to to destroy me so talk about how you came to faith in Jesus uh, I really had a personal encounter with God something that I'm really very grateful for because um, had that not happened I'd probably not be walking with the Lord today Mm-hmm. I had so m- many questions and uh, I was grieving and I was um, I was going through uh, difficult, um, just the death of my mother was something that I was I really, really did struggle with. And so uh, I, I, one afternoon, when one of my brother was since passed on, his name is Rain, I was very, very, very sick with a case of malaria. I actually thought he was going to die. So out of a desperation, I made a deal with God. I told God, if, you're going, if you heal him, I'll surrender my life to you. If you don't heal him, I'll walk away. Uh, I was also looking for an opportunity to you know, say, God, I gave you a chance. You blew it, and now um, I'm completely walking away. But uh, God did not let uh, that happen. He, hmm. he, he came in, he showed himself, and... Uh, and and uh, I had to respond to the call yeah. upon my life. Can you talk a little bit about your the disappointment that you felt in your relationship with the Lord with losing your mom and maybe how that um, that disappointment? How did God use that in the ministry that He's called you to? Um, as a as a as a young person, one of the greatest struggles that I had when I lost my mom was that I did not have anyone who could walk with me. And just help me reconcile what had happened to the reality of who God is, that God doesn't change irrespective of my circumstances. And we live in a broken world, and uh, and 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 sinful world, and and sin has has permeated into in, into into our lives, and that God has come to rescue us and to uh, to redeem us from that, and that the redeeming process is happening. 
And so um, <clears throat> I did not have someone to work with me uh, to help me and uh, reconcile and 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 um, and get to a place where I could embrace the love of God and the, and the true gift of salvation. And so uh, that really led me to where where I am today, mm-hmm. because when I had a chance to, um, uh, you know, when uh, finishing my story about my brother, my brother actually uh, that day when. Uh, when I made a deal with God, he, he actually just fell asleep. And uh, the following morning, uh, it was Sunday morning, and he woke up, he showered, had breakfast, went to church. He was completely healed. <laughs> so I had to uh, keep my end of the deal with God. And uh, and uh, I, I walked in church that day, and I surrendered my life to the Lord. And, and God really replaced my heart of stone with a heart of flesh that could respond to his spirit and his vote and his, his calling upon my life. Mm-hmm. So my greatest uh, need <clears throat> when I uh, when I got um, an opportunity to go study and relocate back home was a desire to be for young people that which I did not find as mm-hmm. a young man. I wanted to be present for young people. I wanted to be present for a 14-year-old who is struggling with the death of their mother or sickness of mm. a parent who is dying of HIV and AIDS or uh, a group of people that have lost their parents through disease or anger or any form of tragedy uh, like I did. And I wanted to work with them and I wanted to help them understand that their circumstances that does not negate who God is and that God remains faithful irrespective of our situation and that you know God could uh, redeem them just like He redeemed me. Mm-hmm. So, because I'm guessing most of our listeners don't know Swahili, <laughs> can you talk about um, what Swahiba means and how that kind of ties into? I mean, the name of the ministry fits with what you're you're talking about. So, the name of our ministry is called Swahiba. Swahiba is a Swahili word, uh, which means a very close friend. It is depicted from the relationship of David and Jonathan where Jonathan was willing to risk his his life at the king's table for the safety of, of David. And mm-hmm. um, when you read in the Swahili Bible, it says it so beautifully. It says, Na Daudi alikuwa swahiba wake Yonathani. We're going to need a translation <laughs> for that one. It says that, uh, uh, that uh, Jonathan was a very close friend of David. Mm. Yes. That's good. Okay, so I think this will be a great transition for you just to tell us a little bit about Swahiba, how you got started in the ministry that you are doing um, in Nairobi today. Uh, because of the faithfulness of God, God orchestrated certain circumstances to take place in order for me to to leave my vision and the call that he had placed in my heart. Uh, I remember one time we were, we were involved with a group of uh, young people that uh, were just doing evangelism. And we got drafted to be involved with a gentleman that had come from England. His name is Don Double. And Don Double was uh, uh, part of um, what is called uh, the Good News Crusade uh, mm-hmm. from southwest of England. And he had come to Nakuru to conduct pastors' uh, conference and crusade. And so we got drafted to help out. And the thing that really raised our profile was that while we were while we were up putting posters of announcing the event, the the crusade and the pastor's conference, we did not have a permit. And so we got arrested. Uh, a group of us got arrested and uh, got locked up in the cell. That's how all good ministries should start, right? <laughs> yes, we got, we got arrested. 
And um, and Don Double heard that four young men were arrested as they were putting the posters of the event. And uh, and God laid it in his heart to sponsor those four young men to go to England to train. So that's how I landed <laughs> in England on the cold morning of January, uh, 20th of January, 1999. <laughs> yes. So I had this great opportunity to, to train in England um, with a full scholarship. Uh, I remember I was uh, I was in the south of southwest of England where it is predominantly white. In fact, I remember being uh, invited to a local church in a place called Truro. Truro is a city uh, to the very uh, south of um, of Cornwall, and um, and at this particular church where I mean it was a hundred percent Caucasian, as white as white gets, <laughs> and uh, and personally I'm I'm blessed with a lot of dark chocolate skin. <laughs> so, uh, so the pastor invites me to the door to greet the congregation, probably about a hundred people in the church, and this kid who is about, um, he's probably about the age of my Abigail, five or six, comes and uh, stands right in front of me at the door with such great concern in his face and eyes, and asks me, "What happened to you?" <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and so, uh, I smile back, lean towards him, and tell him I stood in the sun for too long. Don't ever do that. <laughs> I'm sure he went away, never, never dared to stand in the sun. <laughs> so I get this opportunity to train, and um, God orchestrated it for me to uh, get my training in, uh, in in theology and Christian youth work. And um, and towards the end of my training, I was waiting for my mentor, Colin Piper at uh, Clifton College in Bristol, and he was he was running late. And at the reception, there was a youth work magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the youth work magazine had an article of a group of young people that had gone to do missions in the slums of Kibera in Nairobi, and they had encountered a 14-year-old boy who had lost both of his parents through HIV and AIDS. The, the article of, uh, that article about the questions that that young man had was so was so close or correlated very dearly uh, to to my circumstances when I was a 14 year old that at the end of uh, that article I knew exactly where I, <clears throat> where I was going and what I was going to do so Colin arrives and I tell him I'm going back to Kenya and I'm going to Nairobi and I'm going to Kibera so you had never been to Kibera I had never been to Kibera I was brought up in a town called Nakuru uh, Nakuru is 2 hours west of uh, of Nairobi very small town and um, and and I'd heard of Kibera but I'd never been but at that particular moment I believed that God was orchestrating every step um, um, every step that I made uh, towards realizing his calling upon my life I love that God brought you to a hundred percent white town to tell you about Kibera in Nairobi yes <laughs> to bring you home yes <laughs> Um, okay, great. So talk about some of the beginning days of Swahiba. You're back in Kenya. Where do you start? How do you start um, an NGO in Kenya? So I was, uh, I packed my bags, left my family in Nakuru and went, moved to Nairobi. Uh, and it was, it was scary for me because I never lived in a city with so many people. Uh, so I, I went to the city and I was setting up a small business to, to, uh, to resource me and to find what I was going to do, uh, my ministry. And at the bank, I met a gentleman. He asked me, what are you going to do with all this money that I had raised uh, from England for the business? And I begin to tell him my story. I share with him. I tell him, I want to go to Kibera. I don't know anyone in Kibera. 
Uh, so this gentleman uh, invite, connects me with um, with uh, Bishop Timothy Malay, who was um, a pastor, was running a big center in Kibera, and he was just you know feeding young people, and food was the greatest attraction. So he says, I know a place where you can plug in. Mm. So I end up um, meeting with uh, Bishop Timothy at the time, he was just a pastor, he had not qualified to be a bishop yet. <laughs> and... Um, and so Pastor Timothy invites me and we walk with him to Kibera. He picks me in the city and we go to, we, we board a bus and uh, we, we end up in Kibera around maybe 10 a.m. in the morning. I was shocked at the sheer numbers of people and the conditions under which people lived. Mm-hmm. And I was a Kenyan. Can you tell us a little bit about Kibera for just to give us a frame of reference? Kibera is um, a community that... Um, has about between 800,000 to a million people living in four miles radius uh, starts by Mm -hmm. uh, UN habitat. There is no plumbing and there is no proper roads. Um, There is scanty electricity. There is no sewer system and people are living on literally on top of each other. Mm -hmm. It is a very a very desperate situation. Um, Kibera has a history. We may not have a chance to go through that history now, but Kibera, the word Kibera is a Nubian word, which means a forest. Mm-hmm. There is no forest there now. It is <laughs> no corrugated, rusted iron sheets for as far as your eyes can see. A forest of tin roofs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so go back to Pastor Timothy. So I get a chance to uh, to to visit the Blue House. The Blue House was a place that was was like an oasis for many children that um, that were starving to death and their families could not feed them. And so food was the thing, was the magnet that attracted the children in that center. Mm-hmm. So I arrived at the Blue House and I had access to 400 young people that were ready to listen to whatever <laughs> yeah. I had to say. So I plugged in there and um, in, in there, I found many, many young people, uh, many of whom came to serve on our team, uh, including our, our program coordinator right now, who at the time was only 14 years old, but now is a married man with, with a child. His name is uh, Chris uh, Crispin. And um, we, I began to just teach young people uh, discipleship. Uh, we would do, go out and do outdoor evangelism and go into schools and do ministry. And uh, I remember one one particular uh, Saturday, I was just teaching them um, on the uh, on the concept of our body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, and how we needed to honor God mm-hmm. by uh, by walking in purity. And so, um, this teenage girl of about fourteen years old comes to me and says, "I cannot practice what you've just told us today." And for me, it was a a shock to hear someone say that they're not going to do something that is honorable. Mm-hmm. So I look at her and I ask her, why? This young lady tells me that her mom is a, is a, sells a body for a living. Mm-hmm. She's a prostitute. And her mom was asking her to do the same, to raise money for her exams. I found that extremely hard even to, uh, to, to process because having lost my mom at the age of uh, at such a tender age, I had just excellent memories of a mother. Mm-hmm. I would not imagine that your own blood um, uh, and flesh could actually ask you to do such a desperate thing. But 
when people are desperate, people do desperate things, and and you know you cannot be upset with a blind man if they not if they cannot describe the sunset for you. So this was the situation, and um, and we began to encounter uh, many many stories like that, and that prompted us to begin to do something about it. So we drafted a number of girls. We would did some a little bit of focus group and just wanting to know what was going on. And we found out simple things like a girl would say, my mom would come from work. She's worked a 12-hour shift and uh, come home with $3. And the six of us sit around the table and we have to make a choice whether we are going to have a meal for that day or my mom would buy me sanitary towels. So this girl, obviously, the sanitary towels will lose if people have not eaten for the last 24 hours. Mm-hmm. As she would stay at home, and sooner or later, that need would be met by um, a relative or a neighbor or someone who would take advantage of the girl. And before long, that girl is pregnant, has caught a disease, or worse, she's HIV positive. Mm-hmm. So that that was um, that was a scenario that we we found ourselves in, and we decided that we would do something about it with the little resources that we had we began to meet that need for a small group of girls. And God has grown that to um, get close to a thousand girls on the program right now. That's amazing. Yes. I know you talk a lot about the felt need being feminine products and yes. how you never really thought, you know, dreaming of how God was going to use you in ministry, passing out feminine products yeah. probably didn't make the list, but just simple steps of obedience and walking through open doors. Um and again, for you to say uh, now a thousand girls a month are being discipled, they're in a program. Like when yeah. you hear that, what what do you think about God's faithfulness? I am I am amazed that God would choose to use uh, people like us in spite of us. Because uh, when I first went to Kibera, I was going there out of the pain that I'd experienced as a teenager, mm-hmm. and I wanted to meet a teenager who was going was described in that article and help him walk through his pain mm-hmm. and bring him to a place where he could embrace the free gift of salvation and a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And I quickly found out that uh, uh, it was necessary for me to distribute sanitary towels, <laughs> even though it was not in my radar, but a sanitary <laughs> towel became a contact point for us to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. So we say we wrap the gospel in a sandwich uh, see if you're gonna meet temple needs, you know you you meet you meet temple needs in order to share eternal truth, and if you're gonna f- uh, share the gospel with a hungry person, then you wrap it in a sandwich. <laughs> so we we do that, and we have we've been able to see God really do some amazing things, and we have some testimonies of of redemption. And so even in a place like Ibera, where it, there's so much darkness, the Lord. Is, is truly beginning to show his light uh, for the entrance of the word of God bringeth light. I'm always inspired as I hear Peter's story and how God orchestrated the details of his life from a very young age. Continue listening as he explains the other ministries of Swahiba Networks, the mentorship and empowerment program, the importance of the local church, and why Americans should do short-term mission projects. Also continue to listen as he talks about short-term projects that are done in healthy ways, the importance of firsthand experience, and the ministry of presence, and just being able to walk beside his staff and encourage them on their journey. It seems like 
one step of obedience, like, hey, let's just try, let's go see what the Blue House is doing, and then let's disciple people from there, then let's provide feminine products. And I feel like kind of um, a transition that I've had a front row seat with is the mentoring and empowerment program, like the next step of after these kids are out of high school. So can you talk a little bit about um, what's happening with the mentor and empowerment program? So one of the things we noticed very um early in the day was that when girls graduate high school, when they live in an environment such as Kibera, many of them do not attain the entry grade for public universities. So if you live in a place like Kibera, you, a family cannot afford to take you to a private college. Uh, if you miss public universities, your education ends at that. So um, many of the girls that were in our programs are because out of desperation, if they did not continue their education, many of them will fall off the grid. Mm -hmm. And it was easy for them to fall back into some of the vices that we had worked very closely with them for a period of four years, uh, you know, to, to walk away from. And so we decided that it was, it was imperative um, for us to meet that need. And, and uh, the way to meet it for us, we decided that we would um, empower them with skills and trade and continue the mentorship for a period of five months after graduating high school because we found that many of the girls would either be married off uh, to persons they, they were not ready to get married to. Many of them were married young. You're looking at 15, I mean 17, 18. That's when they, they, they graduate high school. And um, many of them would end up in manual jobs in homes where they would be either sexually or physically abused, or they, they would be in a place where abuse was inevitable because they were desperate. So we chose to um, empower them, uh, empower them uh, with skills and trade that would enable them to um, not be desperate and make a choice of what, um, how they're going to earn a living. And so God has tremendously used that because um, many of the girls, once they have they've been trained, uh, many of them become um, uh, dermatologists or they work with um, women. Uh, women's we, we call it salon in in Africa in mm -hmm. Kenya. Uh, African women love to do their hair, mm -hmm. um, hair and yes, nails. Yeah, and hair and nails and um, pedicure and manicure. So we train them on that, and there's uh, there's unlimited uh, business in that area. Uh, a lot of them also do uh, what we call uh, crafts. Uh, they they learn to to do crafts, and we've worked with one of our, our partners through One to Seven Worldwide to to uh, sell some of the crafts to resource them. Uh, we uh, also train them in uh, uh, um, IT, uh, mm -hmm. information technology, technology uh, uh, skills that allows them to even to do basic things like you know writing a, a CV or or some of them go go on and work in cyber cafes where they're employed. Um, we've we've networked with a company in um, uh, part of the city of Nairobi in Westlands that uh, does uh, an aptitude test for them. And then allows them, gives them scholarship for what their IT. gifting is and how yes. they can serve. Yes, and um, and that has been that has been um, awesome. We've also networked them with uh, catering because we have uh, groups of people that come in and train them on uh, on catering skills, mm -hmm. um, and then network them with the catering companies to serve 
and uh, and and make money. Uh, we've also uh, brought in banks, um, local banks, that come in and train them on uh, uh, financial literacy and just how to manage their money. Uh, we've networked some of them with what we call the microfinance uh, communities uh, that set them up in small groups, gives them small loans so that they can start their own businesses. That's great. And how long has the MEP program been the going Met, on? The MEP program has been going on since 2013. And how many girls have gone through that program? Uh, over 512 of wow. girls. Wow. Yes. Great. So I know that's kind of one area that we focus in on because 127 has a partnership there. Can you just tell us a little bit about other types of things you guys are doing throughout the year if people wanted to get involved? Um, what else is Swahiba doing in Kibera? <laughs> Uh, we, our ministry has evolved as the Lord has uh, put the, the need uh, right in front of us. Uh, so the purity program started as as a as, as a personal encounter with a teenage who was struggling to walk in purity because her mom was asking her to sell her body uh, to raise money for exams. And um, the, the, then the mentorship program was birthed because. We, we found that um, girls were falling off the grid if they did not have a skill and a trade mm-hmm. that, that could help them become self-sustaining. And so um, as, as we did that, we, we saw gaps. And uh, one of the gaps we saw was that uh, even though we were doing amazing things through the purity uh, program, there was need for us to engage both boys and girls in ministry uh, because, yeah, both genders need to go to heaven, not just <laughs> girls. <laughs> so, um, so we 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 developed uh, through uh, one of our partners uh, here in uh, in the U.S. a strategy that we use is called Fast Priority, where we disciple and train young people to reach their fellow uh, fellow students for Christ. So it is um, it's like sending missionaries, student missionaries, into their fellow into their own schools to to reach uh, their fellow students. So alongside the purity program, which God has actually used as um, as a foot in the door for mm-hmm. us, even to yeah. Muslim schools. Correct. So, <laughs> so when you go into a Muslim school and you say you're going to teach girls purity, of course they will open the door <laughs> because they want their girls to walk in purity. They just don't know how to lead them to a, to, a, to the source, which is Christ <laughs> uh, by His Holy Spirit that enables us to walk in purity. So, um, so we they they embrace us. Uh, they and we tell them that we're going to teach them, and we also provide a need. We're going to meet a need, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, provide the girls with feminine products. The 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 problem usually comes in once the girls surrender their lives to the Lord, once the girls um, make a commitment to the Lord Jesus and uh, denounce the Islamic faith. Then a lot of the time we get kicked out, which is okay. Um, uh, so, so the uh, the fast party uh, clubs has been uh, a source, has been a tool that we've used, strategies that we've used to um, disciple young people. Mm-hmm. And once once we saw, we began to see great harvest coming out of that. The next question we asked ourselves was, how is the local church where these young people plug in? So that became the next question for us because. Um, whether they surrender their lives to the Lord through the purity program or the fast party clubs, um, they needed to plug in into the local church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we began to do some assessments and we faced a lot of challenges. Um, the, the young people would come to us and they would say, they would tell us 
certain things that the pastors were teaching on the pulpit and became a great concern to us that they were probably not dividing the word of truth correctly. Mm-hmm. So the question was, we either tell them don't go to that church or we bring these pastors together and begin to walk with them and sharpen them. Mm-hmm. Scripture says in Proverbs twenty seven seventeen that as an iron sharpens an iron, so does a brother and a sister sharpen one another. So we would have simply said, stop going to those churches, but we didn't. We said, we're going to try uh, as the Lord gives us grace to walk with uh, this pastor. So we, ne- we, we mapped an area of Kibera where a majority of the young people that we are ministering uh, to lived and would potentially go to church and invited those pastors and began to walk with them. So we've, we have uh, a pastor's fellowship that we engage with. We walk with these pastors. We made a commitment uh, to invest in them. We bring uh, men, men who God has gifted with uh, teaching skills and uh, have had seminary training that come and engage with these pastors and help uh, train them and sharpen them and allows them to uh, uh, to grow in their faith and how and to divide the word of truth correctly. Because if you're living in Kibera and you're a pastor in Kibera, um, anyone who serves as a pastor in Kibera do not call themselves God called them because besides souls harvesting, there's absolutely nothing else uh, that you get. That's as your a return. reward. Yeah, that's your return on investment, souls. <laughs> and so... Um, and so for me, uh, I see I see those pastors as an integral part of the body of Christ that needs to be reached and equipped, um, and um, and and uh, helped with uh, necessary skills and tools to get to a place where they can correctly divide the word of truth. And one two seven has been a key partner in helping us mm-hmm. uh, uh, do that. Great, um, you've already mentioned some of these, but I, I feel like people might be listening saying. I don't need to come to Swahiba. I hear what Peter's doing. I'm just going to send money and let them continue to do ministry, and I'm going to stay home. So aside from, you know, with the MEP girls we've talked about, if you had skills in business or crafts or teaching theology, why would you say people should come and um, experience what you're doing and come on a short-term mission project? Uh, Because the Great Commission has, has commanded us to go. If Jesus uh, wanted us just to send our resources, we would say, make loads of money and send it. Uh, but he say, go and make <laughs> disciples. So there's something about going that is so um, that is that has um, that has uh, such uh, power to propel you to to do more than just than just giving your resources. If you have resources, yes, please send us resources. <laughs> Uh, but more than that, we would love for you to uh, to engage with us on the ground. Uh, there's nothing as amazing as when you come to a place like Kibera, because I promise you, if you do, it will engage with all your six senses. <laughs> you, it will engage with your sense of touch, sense of smell, sight, hearing, all your senses. And when you walk away from Kibera, I promise you, you will not forget it, <laughs> including the smells. So there's something so special about that because one of, one of the things that does, when you see it, your heart bleeds. Your heart bleeds uh, as the heart of, heart of God bleeds for those people. And it gives you a great burden to pray. Secondly, uh, you become, uh, you become an, an adherent, uh, an authentic advocate uh, for, for what God is doing in our neck of the woods. Because, um, because you've gone, you can tell the stories firsthand. 
And um, and and thirdly, if you're giving, you know what your money is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and so we would we would encourage you to come. Um, in fact, those people that have given so faithfully the longest time, have have um, have uh, led other groups or have advocated for us so um, amazingly, so well. Are people who've already come, uh, they've experienced, and they've been a blessing. At 127, we call it the ministry of presence, being with people in their everyday lives, building those relationships. It can't be done over the internet. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Do you have any kind of last challenge as we wrap up this this part of our conversation? Maybe someone is just interested, um, deciding whether or not they want to get involved for the very first time. How would you encourage them to, to learn more? I would encourage you to uh, uh, visit uh, 127 Worldwide. They have a great resource. Uh, visit Swahibar uh, online. Uh, we have uh, information available for you. Um, but the the truth is, you're gonna make the step of faith. Um, whether you whether you don't have whether you have a dollar or whatever amount of money you have, um, if you make a step of faith, if you step out in faith and say, Lord, I want to do this. Uh, give me the grace, give me the faith, give me the, um, you know, make give me courage and give me the resources the Lord is faithful to provide. So I'm going to, uh, if you're listening to me, I want to challenge you to take a step of faith, you know, step out of the boat and walk on the water. <laughs> great. I think that's a great way to, to wrap up this part. So Thank you, Sarah. Bear. Thank you so much. Asante sana. Check out our show notes at 127worldwide.org forward slash simply 127 podcast. And tune in next time to learn how others tangibly live out James 127 every day. Music